if it be your will, that I speak no more, and my voice be still, as it was before, I will speak no more, I shall abide until This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Leonard Cohn, a unique voice, a poet, songwriter. We're going to spend an hour on his life. Yes, he's Canadian. We get it. The influence he had on American writers, on American music, and the life he lived is worthy of celebration. And so we do because we love music here on Our American Stories. Leonard Cohen was born on September 21st, 1934, in Quebec, in an English-speaking area, into a middle-class Jewish family. His mother, Marcia, was the daughter of Talmudic writer of Lithuanian Jewish ancestry. His paternal grandfather, whose family had emigrated from Poland, was Lion Cohen, founding president of the Canadian Jewish Congress. His father, Nathan Cohen, owned a substantial clothing store, but died when Leonard was nine years old. Cohen passed away on November 7th, 2016. And he explored everything in his writing and in his poetry. Religion, though, politics, isolation, loneliness, self-doubt, sexuality, personal relationships. The big stuff, that's what he wrote about. Political correctness was not his game. Democrats tried to seize his mantle. So did Republicans. Same with Dylan. You can't seize Leonard Cohen's mantle. It's unseizable. He was inducted into both the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, as well as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cohen enrolled at McGill University in Montreal in 1951, where he became president of the debating union and won a literary competition. After completing his undergraduate degree, Cohen spent a term in McGill's law school and then a year at the School of General Studies at Columbia University in New York. Cohen describes his graduate school experience as passion without flesh, Love Without Climax. His first published book of poetry, Let Us Compare Mythologies, in 1956, was published the year after Cohen's graduation. The book contained poems written largely when Cohen was between the ages of 15 and 20. Listen to a young Leonard Cohen recite a portion of Let Us Compare Mythologies. During the first pogrom, they met behind the ruins of their homes. Sweet merchants trading her love for a history full of poems. And at the hot ovens, they cunningly managed a brief kiss before the soldier came to knock out her golden teeth. He was always going to be writing about serious things, folks. Always. Here's another sample of Cohen's poetry. This one from Spice Box of Life. You tell me that silence is nearer to peace than poems. But if for my gift I brought you silence, for I know silence, you would say, this is not silence, this is another poem, and you would hand it back to me. Cohen biographer Ira Nadal 
explains that while Cohen's poetry had merit, it was rather tame compared to what was popular at the time. It has some merit. I mean, if you looked at it in relation to American poetry being published at that time, and you're just at the cusp of the Beat Generation, Howell is 1956, for example, preceding it, it's pretty tame stuff. But for Canada, whoa, great. Here was a young writer, found his voice, wasn't uh, embarrassed to write nakedly about uh, subjects that other poets had been much more discreet about. Here's another reading from Leonard Cohen from Two Went to Sleep, written in 1964, performed in 1974. Two went to sleep almost every night. One dreamed of mud, one dreamed of Asia. Visiting a Zeppelin, visiting Nijinsky. Two went to sleep. One dreamed of ribs, one dreamed of senators. Two went to sleep, two travelers. The long marriage in the dark. The sleep was old. The travelers were old. One dreamed of oranges. One dreamed of Carthage. Two friends asleep. Years locked in travel. Good night, my darling. As the dreams waved goodbye. One traveled lightly. One walked through water. Visiting a chess game. Visiting a booth always returning to wait out the day. One carried matches, one climbed a beehive, one sold an earphone, one shot a German. Leonard Cohen's music, well, it started oddly and unlikely. And it's the song Suzanne. It was written by Leonard Cohen in the 1960s, first published as a poem in 1966, recorded as a song by Judy Collins in the same year, and Cohen performed it as his debut single from his 1967 album Songs of Leonard Cohen. Many other artists have recorded versions, and it has become one of the most covered songs in Cohen's great catalog. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night beside her And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you wanna be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always been her lover And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind. Leonard Cohn's music, Leonard Cohn's life, celebrated for the hour. Let's go back to Suzanne. Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower 
could see him He said all men will be sailors then Until the sea shall free them But he himself was broken Long before the sky would open Forsaken, almost human He sank beneath your wisdom like a stone This is Our American Stories, the music, the life of Leonard Cohn. When he decided to switch creative direction, well, who knows if he actually decided it. I think it just happened. From poetry to music, it happened at the age of 33. By the way, we've done a lot of music stories. It almost always starts much, much younger. And I'm talking 8, 10, 12, Irving Berlin, 5. It starts really young. Leonard Cohn, 33 years old. Here, Cohen talks about that transition from going from an author to a musician. At a certain point, I realized that uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to buckle down and make a living. I, I don't really know how to do this. I'd written a couple of novels, and they'd been well-received, but they'd sold about maybe 3,000 copies. Some of, them, some of them won an award or two, and, and the reviews were good, but, but the sales were very, very limited, so... I really had to do something, and the only other thing I knew how to do was play guitar. So I was on my way down to Nashville. I thought maybe I could get a job. I love love country music. Maybe I'd get a job playing guitar. And then I'd been in Greece for a long time. I was kind of out of touch with what was going on. When I hit New York, I, I bumped into what later was called a folk song renaissance. There were people like Judy Collins and Dave Van Ronk and Dylan and Joan Baez. There were wonderful singers around. And I hadn't heard their work. So um, that touched me very much. Cause I'd always been writing little songs myself too, but I never thought there was any, any uh, marketplace for them. Yep, and there was. Songs of Leonard Cohen was released in December 1967. And by the way, by 1989, it had reached gold status. And here, record producer John Simon talks about recording that first album with Leonard Cohen and how he discovered that what made Cohen stand out, well, was something very different from other musicians. He had been signed by John Hammond. And Leonard's complaint at the time was that Leonard was holed up in the Chelsea Hotel. He would have a session with John Hammond, and John Hammond would say... Some, at some point during the session, or right before the session, I'm sorry, I, we have to stop or we have to cancel this session. And Leonard was there for another month in the Chelsea Hotel without another session. So he had asked Columbia, I suppose, for a different producer, and they had paired us up. Then I began to realize the kind of musician he was. He wasn't a guitar player like most of the artists that I was working with, because most of the artists came up through listening to pop music. So they knew how to play... Uh, you know, rock and roll or blues, something like that. Leonard apparently learned how to play classical guitar because he did those things like real fast, real fast. It was very easy to record and, and it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to record and it was smart, you know. It's, a lot of these acts that I recorded, they weren't too smart. But Leonard uh, was, you know, smart and, and, and fun to be with and... and uh, full of uh, insight about things. So it was an honor to work with Leonard, you know, and a pleasure. Track five from Leonard Cohen's debut album is a song called Sisters of Mercy. 
Here, Cohn talks about how this was the only song he ever wrote from beginning to end with not an edit. All the sisters of mercy. I was in Edmonton doing a tour by myself, Canada. I guess this was around 67. And I was walking along one of the main streets of Edmonton. It was bitter cold, and I knew no one. And uh, I passed these two girls in the doorway, and they invited me to stand in the doorway with them. Of course I did. Sometime later, we found ourselves in my little hotel room at Edmonton, and the three of us were going to go to sleep together. Of course, I had all kinds of uh, erotic fantasies of what the evening might bring. And uh, we went to bed together, and uh, I think we all jammed into this one small couch in this little hotel. And uh, it became clear that that wasn't the purpose of the evening at all. And at one point in the night, I found myself uh, unable to sleep. I got up, and by the moonlight, it was very, very bright, and the moon was being reflected off the snow. And I wrote that poem by the ice-reflected moonlight while these women were sleeping. And it was one of the few songs that I ever wrote from top to bottom without a, re- a line of revision. The words flowed and the melody flowed, and by the time they woke up the next morning, it was dawn, I had this completed song to sing for them. And here's that song, Sisters of Mercy, from Leonard Cohen. All the sisters of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. And they brought me their comfort and later they brought me this song. next clip, Leonard Cohn talks about his unlikely success as a struggling author, becoming a successful musician. He attributes it all to luck, skill, and hard work. In hindsight, it seems to be the height of folly. Uh, yeah, to, 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 um, to resolve your economic crisis by becoming a, a folk singer. No, no, no. I don't know. And I, 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 I had not much of a voice either, and I didn't play that great guitar either. So... Uh, it, it was, uh, I, I don't know how these things happen in in life. They, luck has so much to do with, with uh, success and failure. I always had a, I always had the notion that I had, you know, a tiny garden to cultivate. Uh, I never thought I was really one of the big guys. 
my work, the work that was in front of me was just to cultivate this, this tiny corner of the field that I thought I knew something about, which was something to do with self-investigation uh, with, without self-indulgence. I, I never liked the latter too much as a, as a, as a mode. Just pure confession. I never felt was really interesting, but 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 confession filtered through a tradition of uh, of skill and uh, uh, hard work. Indeed, there'd be several albums to follow. Here is record producer John Simon again about how difficult it is for a musician to release new music after that successful debut album. There's something really extraordinary about a debut album. An artist has been writing these songs for quite a number of years, generally, and so they're the cream of the crop songs, the best songs. And they don't want to save the second, the best songs for the second album. They don't want to give you their second best songs. They want to give you their best songs. And uh, along with that is the fact that the second album is often the most difficult to do because uh, a debut album will come out and it'll be a big sensation, and people will say, well, what's this clown got to follow up with? And then they're stuck, and they have to really scramble and write fast, and and, uh, sometimes the second album is forced and contrived. But the first album is always genuine, and the the result of the artist's soul from the time that they were born until the time that they make that album. And that's so true, and there are so many, so many bands who it's over after album one, because that represented a decade of work and the pressure to top it, to do better, to move into a different direction, really hard. Leonard Cohen, for the hour, we're going to dig into the miraculous part of his catalog because it just kept maturing. I was lucky enough to see him at the Lyceum Theater about a year before he passed. Brought my bride, and it was one of the great honors of a lifetime Musicians had descended from Nashville, from New York, everywhere. And it was hushed. It was silent. And you were seeing something that you knew was original. You knew was wonderful. And you knew you were lucky, lucky to be there. And you also got the sense it may be the last time you'd ever see him. As you'll learn, he did not like touring and did not like the spotlight. A star, a celebrity who hated the spotlight. Leonard Cohn, his life celebrated for the hour here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories for the Hour, The Life of Leonard Cohen. Several recordings in the 70s, Phil Spector on one. But the song Hallelujah, well, that's the song so many people know him by. It was first released on his studio album called Various Positions in 1984. The song had limited initial success, but found greater popularity through a 1991 cover by John Cale, which formed the basis for this cover by Jeff Buckley. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it 
goes like this The fourth, the fifth The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing Hallelujah 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 Here, Leonard Cohen talks about the success of Hallelujah. Happy that the song was was um, being used. Uh, of course, there were certain ironic and amusing uh, sidebars, you know, because the record that it came from, which was called Various Positions, that record Sony didn't put, wouldn't put out. They didn't think it was good enough. It had songs like Dance Me the End of Love, Hallelujah, If It Be Your Will. But it wasn't considered good enough for the American market. It, was, it wasn't put out. So there was a certain sense of, a mild sense of revenge that arose in my heart. But uh, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, 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 was, I was happy about it, but it's, I, I was just reading a review of uh, a movie called Watchmen that uses it. And the reviewer said, can we please have a moratorium on Hallelujah, you know, in in movies and television shows. (laughs) I kind of feel the same way. (laughs) I'm sure. Hallelujah has been performed by almost 200 artists in various languages. Here, Leonard talks about why he thinks people should stop covering the song, at least for now. He also describes how Bob Dylan was the first person to notice the song. I think too many people are singing. I, I think people ought to stop singing it for a little while. You know, you're, one is always trying to write a, a good song, and like everything else, you put in your best effort, but you can't command the consequences. So it took a long time. The, uh, the song was written. I thought I think the song came out in, in 83 or 84. And then the only person who seemed to recognize the song was Dylan. And he was he was doing it in, in concert. Nobody else recognized the song until quite a long time later, I think. When was Jeff Buckley's? 92, so it's almost uh, 10 years later. I was in the room when, when Katie Lang sang it at the uh, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. That, that really touched me. Indeed, and KD is some singer. And by the way, John Hammond, who signed the uh, Leonard Cohen act to Columbia, he also signed Bob Dylan. And he also signed Bruce Springsteen and Billie Holiday. Not bad for a career. That's an A&R guy. While Cohen says it might be time for people to stop covering Hallelujah for a while, he goes on to talk about how he's never been critical of anyone who's covered any of his works. I'm not sure this ever happened. You know, I had a very modest career for most of my life. And uh, I was always happy when someone did one of my songs. So that overrode critical concerns I might have had. In fact, you know, my critical faculties went into suspended animation when someone would do one of my songs, and I I generally was just delighted when anybody, and I still feel that way. Here, Cohn talks about what his songs sound like and how female backup singers have a major influence on his music. I wanted the songs to sound like everybody else's songs. 
In other words, uh, I was very much influenced by women's, women's background voices. I liked those songs that had the, that feel. You know, those are the songs of the 50s. So those, those are the sounds I, I wanted to try to reproduce. Also, my own voice sounded so um, disagreeable when I listened to it that I really needed the sweetening of women's voices behind me. Well, let's take a listen. Hands down, my wife and I's favorite. We were so happy he played it at the Orpheum. Dance Me to the End of Love. And again, this song was on the same record that Hallelujah was. A song, an album, that the Columbia record folks didn't think was much of an album. And they were proven wrong. Let's take a listen to this beautiful, romantic ballad by Leonard Cohen. regards to live performances, Cohn describes a cycle of anxiety and confidence, depending on the reaction from his audience. You cycle through these, uh, these feelings of anxiety and confidence. You know, if, if, you, if something goes well in one's life, one you know, feels the, um, the benefits of, of, of the success when something doesn't go well. One, one feels remorse. So uh, those, those uh, uh, activities persist in one's life right, right, to the, right to this moment. I have a strong sense that I exist. So that's as legitimate as I, as I need to, to be. But when you're out there in front, of, in front of the public, you're going to get a whole lot of responses. And um, at this stage of the game, I have a pretty thick skin. So uh, I, 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 I prefer praise to, uh, to criticism, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really ready for both. And 
again at the Orpheum. He was at the top of his game. He didn't look worried. He looked in command. And maybe that's because the audience was just hanging on every word and giving, giving him the approval all artists and performers long for. And we leave with Dance Me to the End of Love. Leonard Cohn, The Life for the Hour, here on Our American Stories. With a burning violin Dancing through the panic Till I'm gathered safely Touch me with your naked hand Touch me with your glove Dancing to the end of love Dancing to the end of love American Stories, that's Nick Cave covering I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohn. And the man wrote about love like few ever did. Not sweet and saccharine, but not ugly either. Just the tough kind of love anybody who's been in a real long loving relationship. It's not simple, and Leonard Cohn's music is not simple. And while Cohn never married, he had many women in his life. Here, Cohn talks about the influence that his relationships have had on his music and how love is the most challenging activity that humans can endure. It's not a level playing ground for either of us, for either the men or the women. Uh, this is the, uh, the most challenging activity that, uh, that humans get into, which is love, you know, where we, we, have, we have the sense that we can't live without love, that life has very little meaning without love. So... We're invited into this arena, which is a, a very dangerous arena, where the um, possibilities of, uh, uh, for humiliation and failure are, are ample. There's no fixed lesson that one, one can, can learn about, about the thing, because the heart is always opening and closing. Uh, it's always softening and hardening. Uh, we're always experiencing um, joy or sadness. So there's no, there's no jackpot in the whole enterprise. There's just, you're either going to have the courage because after a certain amount of time, the accumulation of defeats in this realm are going to be um, significant. So uh, I think people that, um, 
in spite of the defeat, in spite of the uh, impossibility of of uh, establishing reasonable contacts with the other. But the people that are fortunate enough to be able to continue to do that are indeed fortunate. But there are lots of people that close down. And there are times in one's life when one has to close down just to regroup. Just to regroup. I think that's why so many people were drawn to Cohen. He wrote about love and betrayal, that flip side, and the humiliation and the shame. Cohn here continues his thoughts on relationships and the different experiences that come with each one. It's a ferocious uh, uh, activity, you know, where you experience defeat and you experience uh, um, acceptance and you experience uh, uh, exaltation and uh, uh, the... um, a fixed idea about it will definitely um, uh, cause you a great deal of suffering. If, if you have the feeling that it's, that it's going to be an easy ride, you're going to be disappointed. If you have a feeling that it's, that it's going to be hell all the way, you may be surprised. Indeed. In 1992, Cohn released its follow-up, The Future, a terrific record, my favorite, which had dark lyrics, but optimistic points as well. But he was looking at the future and at political and social rest, unrest to come. And let's take a listen to the song, the showcase song, the title song of that record called The Future. Some of the key lines in that, give me back the Berlin Wall, give me Stalin and St. Paul. I've seen the future brother. It's murder. He's looking for good and evil. He's looking for those stark contrasts and sickened by the ambiguity and the moral shades of gray that everybody says there's really no difference between wrong and right. There's no such thing. And he's yearning 
for good and evil and discussions of it again. And how many writers in the 1990s are writing about that? We know that John Paul II was talking about that. We know that Ronald Reagan was talking about that. Theologians across the world, Solzhenitsyn, was lecturing people at Harvard about this. And there was Leonard Cohen right there. And at the age of 60, he felt his time as a performer had passed. He shaved his head, became an ordained Buddhist monk, and moved into a monastery. He continued to consider himself Jewish. In regards to his faith, here Leonard Cohen talks about how he was never able to enjoy fame. I had some wonderful moments on the road, you know, traveling with musicians and playing with musicians and, you know, playing in different countries before different kinds of people. There were some wonderful moments and wonderful concerts. Um... But I was never really, except, you know, when I you know, have a few bottles of red wine and sing my heart out with some great musicians, and that was wonderful. And uh, I'll cherish those moments, but by and large, I didn't have what it took to really enjoy my success or my celebrity. I, I was never able to locate it. I was never able to use it. Cohen describes the peace, quiet, and minimalism that he enjoys in the Buddhist traditions. I like the quietness of it. Uh, I like the idea of being with people and not having to speak. I like the silence. I like the company, the sense of community, and yet the silence in the midst of it. It's very different from being by yourself. It's a very uh, rich silence. It's a very uh, communicative kind of uh, silence. So I like that very much. Uh, And I like, you know, washing my little dishes and uh, having my little, my little bundle of dishes and, and spoons and chopsticks, you know. It's, it's very, uh, uh, it's a uh, voluptuous uh, sense of economy that uh, uh, you can't find anywhere else. I mean, maybe the world was like this at one time, you know, maybe everybody took care of themselves this way, maybe everybody uh, really looked after things and, you know, uh, I don't know. But I like to be in a place where, you know, people uh, uh, cherish the idea of a clean table and of a, uh, uh, of, a, of a meal that has been, you know, carefully cooked and carefully served and carefully eaten. Uh, to me, it's a very refreshing opportunity. Cohen describes the writing process in his later years as becoming increasingly difficult because of the nature and tone of our times. Let's take a listen. In writing, if, if you can discard the slogans that naturally come to you, especially in a highly politicized time like we are now, where gender politics and, uh, and, and regular politics and uh, environmental politics, you know, where there's a, a, a good thing to say about everything if you're on the right side, uh, these times are very difficult to write in because the slogans uh, really are, are jamming the airwaves. It's something that goes beyond what, what has been called political correctness. It's, it's a kind of tyranny of, um, of, um, of, uh, uh, of a posture, a kind of tyranny that exists today of like what, what, what the right thing should be. Those ideas are swarming through the air like locusts. And it's difficult for the writer to, to determine what, what he really thinks about things, what, what he really feels about things. So uh, 
In my own case, uh, uh, I have to write the verse and then see if it's a slogan or not and then toss it. But I, I can't toss it until I've worked on it and seen uh, uh, what it really is. So I, I find that process of writing the verse and discarding it until I get down to something that, that doesn't sound like a slogan, that doesn't sound like, uh, like, like something that's easy, that surprises me. The life of Leonard Cohen, never a slogan. You can't find slogans in his work. And it's never easy, but it's almost always beautiful. The life of Leonard Cohen, his poetry, his music, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and the Thanksgiving story well you're about to hear it for the hour it didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863 but the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration what you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurky, do and turkey, lurky, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, 
Their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm. But his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail 
for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists made another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500 plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean 
this is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the New World, where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5th, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. 
He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower, was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. (laughs) (laughs) See that quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the animals! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a swap bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, After more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and ten of the thirteen sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind, and then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving, and we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest, so they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set, and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah. Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. We have gravy. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society, where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time when the holiday, such as Thanksgiving, that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television. Everything's wonderful and it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays you 
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.